the Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha is referred to as somebody, someone who perfected come what may seeing. is a long Pali word translated in a sense and somewhat awkwardly into English as come what may, you could hyphenate it if you like, come what may, seeing. That term caught my attention. I actually like it very much. It says a lot to me. So I'd like to explore both those terms, come what may and seeing. First, uh, a background leading into the, a few notions leading into an understanding of this kind of seeing. Sometimes this meditation path has been referred to as the path of the warrior. Once I was reading some material which referred to this meditation path as the path of the warrior. And my Aunt Jenny, who grew up in Russia and has a strong Russian accent, pronounces things very much a Russian way, looked over my shoulder and said, you know, wanted to know what I was reading about, this, this uh, paper about warriors. And I said, no, no, it's not warriors, it's warriors. She said, that's what I mean, warriors. And then we had a good laugh when I described what I meant and she told me what she meant, which was the same thing. But then, in another sense, she was right. We have a choice of either the path of being a warrior or a warrior. The warrior's path, as expressed through this uh, particular approach, does not include submachine guns, grenades, missiles and all the rest, quite the contrary. It's a development of tremendous gentleness, persistence, becoming harmless both to yourself and to others. But one quality of this warrior, which is impossible to get away from, is the capacity, and at the beginning it might be you have to have a strong stomach, the capacity to face whatever turns up in one's life. That's not what most of us normally do, unless we're encouraged, supported. There's a lot of avoidance. And how we see and attend is very selective, very much dependent on anxiety, Anxiety and inattention being very strongly related. And so being a warrior here is developing the strength gradually in a sustained way, this capacity to stay awake, come what may. The come what may refers to, and that's the beauty of the term to me, is this unknown quality 
of what is going to be thrown up by the mind in any given moment. We really don't know. All kinds of things are thrown up. Some of them familiar, but as you go on in this, there are some rather strange things that come up or some painful things, which we sort of knew were there all along, but then they come up. And so it's a commitment to stay awake, come what may. To see, to continue seeing, to continue attending. It's not literally with one's eyes, it's attention. One of the reasons that we have retreats like this, where groups of people come together, is that apparently self-knowledge, although there's a great deal of value, at least in speech, paid and in in writing and on the tops of buildings at universities, a lot of approval of wisdom, self-understanding, self-knowledge. Nonetheless, there are not long lines of people queuing up to do it, to do this work. Maybe it seems like it's a crowded weekend, but really it's just a small number of people who for some reason, maybe you didn't know that that's what you were coming here to do, but that, that is what we're here to do, uh, to get to know ourselves. And not fully knowing what will turn up. And of course, this is, comes up in, in groups and in interviews all the time. It's also suggested in the Buddhist teaching that the true nature of the mind right now for each one of us, without exception, no matter how rocky the retreat may be for you, no matter how tired or on the ropes you feel at this moment, each one of us has a mind, our original mind, that is perfect, beautiful, luminescent, No problems whatsoever. None. Perhaps you could call it Buddha nature. It's one word used for it. And even well before something as deep as that is experienced, there are no question that there's a place, there are places in the mind that are tremendously fulfilling and have nothing to do with how the world is treating us. They just are. It just is. But how come we're not feeling that then, if we're all little Buddhas sitting here? We've heard that, probably, unless you're very new to this, you probably have heard that, that each person is a Buddha. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the first refuge, in the deepest sense is that. In other words, we already are Buddha. We're taking refuge in the deepest, most fulfilled possibility or potentiality that is us now. And one of the reasons that we are not there or not manifesting or in touch or have it accessible is our inability to pay attention so that we can see that the various moods, for example, that move through the mind kind of seduce us into believing certain things about ourselves. The various mental states, emotional states, states of the body, They come and go, clearly, but they trick us. They fool us into believing that that's who we are and that's what our mind is. 
And so this blocks us. We're not in touch. The come what may aspect of the statement has to do with an increasingly wide range of openness to whatever comes up. In other words, it's more and more becomes fine, welcome. Of all shadings, things we like, we don't like, things that are kind of neutral. And the seeing part, just to mention a little bit about that. The seeing starts where we start. In other words, we bring whatever quality of seeing to a given moment, to a given mind moment, we bring what we can. We can't do anything else. But the perfection that is pointed to in the Buddha means really clear seeing. Not only is there a capacity to be with whatever turns up, but there is a tremendous clarity and depth in the seeing of that which presents itself. And we're developing both. We're learning gradually how to establish a more friendly relationship to whatever the mind produces. We're learning that we don't have to be so afraid of, for example, fear. And if we keep doing this, the seeing becomes more subtle, more precise, has more depth. We begin to see the way things actually are rather than through a conceptual conclusion or haze, filter. In the course of a retreat like this, uh, I would say easily half of the people on this retreat are very new to this practice, perhaps more of you. The environment that your mind is functioning in, to a great extent, are what are called the hindrances. Attentiveness looks around and what it sees is the mind wanting things that it doesn't think it has, maybe better meditative states or material possessions right here while you're sitting, wanting people, whatever it wants, sensual gratification. And when it isn't doing that, the mind is restless or perhaps irritable, And when it isn't restless, it's dull and sleepy. And when it isn't dull and sleepy, perhaps it's having remorse about something. And when that isn't happening, perhaps we just doubt, just doubt the whole thing, doubt ourselves, this whole enterprise, teachers, teachings, So if we have a composite of the typical new yogi, it's pretty dense, pretty heavy. I'm not saying it's that way in an unrelieved way, but from time to time we're coming, that's our milieu, that's what we're experiencing. Mind states that are changing from one to the other. First we're restless, then we're dull. Wanting so much apparently not feeling that what we have is enough. And it's these hindrances that are 
looked at when we, or must be learned to be looked at. It's the skill we develop in being, learning how to establish a friendly relationship, how to peacefully coexist with whatever turns up. And we become aware of things simply because they're there. We don't need any other reason. We don't need to justify it with any theory of what the Buddha said or Freud said. We become attentive to something. I know this must sound like so so obvious that it's nonsense, but we become attentive to something simply because it's there. That's what our life is in that moment. That's what we're encountering. Whether we prefer it or, or not, that's what's there. Let's just uh, explore a bit regarding this come what may and why we don't have that capacity yet. Why aren't we just 100% open to whatever shows up? Why can't we establish ourselves in what the old Chinese teachers called the position of the host in the mind? The position of the host being awareness, the knowingness, the knowing quality of mind. But rather we keep forgetting that we're the host and we fall in with the guests. And what these old Chinese masters said is that if I could kind of paraphrase it a bit. It's like a party where a wide range of guests turn up, some of whom have not been invited, in fact, stagger in drunk, angry, abusive, and worse. And others are just wonderful, responded RSVP, well-dressed, cordial, polite, make you feel good that you threw the party, compliment you on the hors d'oeuvres, Anyway, they all turn up, all these guests, and the host's job is to not forget that they're the host, to welcome everyone, to make everyone feel at home, to introduce everyone to everyone, and to, in general, orchestrate a harmonious evening that everyone can look back upon and say, what a nice evening we had. But we keep forgetting. We get attached to this or that. Perhaps we try to throw someone out make a scene and then we feel embarrassed that we're not a very good host or hostess. The analogy being, if we can establish the position of host in the mind, that means become knowingness, become the knowing, that which knows. And the guests, of course, are all these different creatures that visit us in our mind and body. Some invited and welcome, and others, well, can we retain that stability of perception in the midst of all this coming and going, and, and not forget that we're the host? Okay, clearly, one of the reasons that we are not able to be aware of things come what may is that a lot of what turns up are what we conceive of as being problems, trouble. 
angry mind states, sad mind states, frightened mind states, lonely mind states, irritable mind states. We don't want these states. We don't want these feelings. We don't want the body to feel a certain way. It's only natural. We just don't want it. And the practice is saying, as you know, we try to say it in many different ways so we don't all bore each other to death, but basically there's one thing that's being said and if you have other teachers, they'll have their own way, but we're saying the same thing. Pay attention. But you know, but then it happened and then what? Yeah, pay attention. We'll say it with different words. Sometimes we'll focus on the nose, sometimes on the left big toe. But it's always the same thing, isn't it? Watch it. Stay awake. See what's happening. And we have all these reasons that the mind throws up about why we can't do that and won't do that and don't want to do that. And so we have a lot of selectivity. We, we don't just watch. We can't really see deeply because we're too concerned with what's there. If a lonely feeling comes up, we don't want to feel lonely. We know that feeling. We just don't want to feel it at that moment. And so we have ways of not looking, of not seeing what is loneliness. We avoid it, or we repress it, or we get caught in it, and then we're lonely. We, we talk about ourselves as being lonely. Well, fear comes up, a very big one for all of us, central in the practice. It distorts our lives. It stunts us in so many ways, bends us out of shape, prevents us from doing what we want to do, uh, inclines us to make foolish decisions because we're afraid. We don't live the way we really want to live. And we don't want to see things that we don't like. We're afraid to sometimes. Because if we see them, at least sometimes, we might have to act. And if we have to act, we might lose a friendship or a job or an apartment or something. We might have to tell someone something that would be very unpleasant. And so we catch a glimpse of it in the mind and then quickly whisk it away, come back to the breath very quickly. So there really often is not clear seeing. We may catch a glimpse, but even that glimpse is from some angle, some frame of reference. We're reacting to it. We're calling it observation. We're calling it mindfulness. We're calling it awareness. But really, there's so much of us in it. There isn't just seeing. There's me seeing. There's me, the meditator, which is the past, which is all of our aspirations regarding meditation. Then sometimes the mind is filled up with wonderful states. Happiness. Even here, sometimes it happens. 
there's happiness or ecstasy or bliss or great peace. And it gets more and more subtle, the kinds of happiness that are possible in meditative life are extraordinary. But even here we, do, we have problems in really seeing. In other words, this come what may seeing. We prefer when things are, when happy states come, to just get caught in it. Look, I just want to be happy. Forget about all this awareness stuff. <laughs> that was all right when I was unhappy. But now that things are going well, I just want to be taken away by it. Just that hum in the mind, very rarefied, concentrated state. It's wonderful. I don't know why that teacher keeps telling me, watch it and notice it's impermanent. It's such a spoil sport. It's incredible up there. What have I got to look forward to, to come back to anyway? But we're not really seeing those states because we don't want to even these very happy ones, because we crave them so much. That's not seeing. That might be enjoying. And perhaps we start to see what that's all about, because those states, of course, come to an end. And then there are neutral states. We We don't look very carefully there either because they're neutral. In the first case, we don't look too well. I'm not saying always, but certainly sometimes, because things are very unpleasant, painful, and we don't want to experience that. And when it's happy, we do want to experience it, but with identification, totally being lost in it. And neutrality, ordinariness, we don't know what to do with that. We don't even know it's there because we're so often buffered between the problems of the first and the joys of the second. It's very important, these ordinary states. Let me, to get ahead of ourselves a little in regard to leaving here. There's a tendency to get attached to the very delight delightful states and a tendency to push away and reject the negative states and a tendency to space out when things are just neutral, ordinary. A tendency. One of the things that happens to meditators, especially if the practice is going well, if the practice is strong, you start to taste some very refined sensations very refined, that by and large are not available in daily life. Exquisite periods of peace, quiet kinds of happiness, just quiet itself. Very subtle, very refined, and very fulfilling. This is for when the practice gets strong. And people get uh, attached there And then there's an invidious comparison between those very refined states that come to be known mainly in meditation, mainly in formal meditation, perhaps mainly in retreats, and the very coarse states which constitute the rest of our life. And by coarse, I'm not demeaning them. I'm just describing it. 
the ordinary stuff that makes up our life. And we can't have the same refinement when we leave here, let's say after a few days. The very hard-earned samadhi that we've developed is gone because the conditions have changed and everything is arising and passing away dependent on conditions. And so what can happen is the mind becomes even less interested in daily life perhaps than it was before it ever meditated. It just doesn't feel like it's anything spiritual or dharmic. Now, one of the virtues of ordinary walking, walking at a normal speed, if you recall this morning, we sketched out some of the advantages of very slow walking, the precision that's possible, the microscopic noticing, and the disadvantages. It's being remote from the way in which we normally walk. This is a little bit of what I'm getting at. The strength of normal walking, of learning how to pay attention doing normal things, walking at a normal speed, eating at a normal speed, getting dressed and undressed at a normal speed, ordinariness, learning how to be normal, ordinary. The advantage is, in practicing this, there's much more of a carryover into our daily life. Now, it's not to set this up as either or, because both are valuable. But, for example, some of the most fruitful retreats for, for me, personally, and this may sound kind of foolish, but I remember one three-month retreat, all I practiced was doing everything normally. Just walking at my usual speed, eating at my usual speed, not doing any, not slowing down, not doing anything special in terms of speed. But because this is a protected environment and there are constant reminders, I was able to improve whatever level I started with. I was able to improve my ability to stay quite wakeful with just this ordinary stuff. Getting dressed, undressed, bathing, brushing one's teeth. It's as if I had a practice to just be normal. (laughs) Practice being a normal person. What do I need to practice? Well, because I guess I don't know how to do it. That's why. And one of the first things I learned was that how much more the mind was interested in these very refined states of sitting and that there was a dropping off in interest, motivation, and even a feeling that this, whether this was even worth it, all this, you know, just bending over and moving in this direction or that direction. But there is a fact that probably those kinds of ordinary movements constitute, I don't know where I get this figure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's close to the truth, 90% of our life or more. That's where we live, doing those ordinary things, sweeping the floor and making our bed, cooking and washing up. And so, if we don't learn how to see this ordinariness, that becomes a problem and there's a split between so-called practice and so-called daily life and then we start talking a great deal about integrating the two. Well, we split them up in the first place and that's why we have to struggle so hard to integrate them. There's really only one life. In fact, you're in it right now. No matter where you go, there you are again. You want to go off to India? Good. It'll be you in India. You'll be taking your mind with you. Right there, on the plane, getting off the plane. Oh, wow, I'm in India. Yeah, who's in India? Same mind. 
Only now it's got an Indian stage set. And so a balanced practice needs both. We have to start seeing little traps that we create for ourselves. Little areas of where we become very strong in the practice and as a result, just want to be there. Just want to be where it's quiet and peaceful and where the people eat vegetables. (laughs) And they're not mean to each other. They don't holler at you. Instead of that office that I work in where everyone is... There are all these carnivores dripping blood from there. <laughs> they walk on all fours. You know. They don't meditate. How can we learn to see? How can we learn to see the things that, let's say, that are problems for us? The troublesome stuff that comes through the mind which we don't want to look at or which we condemn and get caught, but don't just see. And that's what the Buddha is doing. That's what come what may seeing is. The seeing is just seeing. There's nothing extra. There's no Buddha doing the seeing. That's just a word. There's just this quality of knowing seeing things as they are. Well, now we get into the core of the practice and the special meaning of vipassana, insight. For example, let's take fear. And this evening I just want to sketch out a few examples, but I hope they suggest that these are real things that real people can do. and have done, and are doing. And we can be people who can do it as well. Let's take fear or loneliness. There comes a time in the practice when the samadhi level, or the the stability of mind, the serenity, concentration of mind, is such that it's fit to face fear, face to face. In fact, sometimes what happens is fear will come up in the sitting and you're right there with it, and it's a very happy feeling. It's, it's hard to describe if you're very new to this practice. There is definitely fear, but you're in the right place. The right place being you're right there attending to it fully, and there's some kind of fulfillment in it. Even though you may be quaking in your boots or tears may be streaming down your cheeks, you know that you're exactly where you should be. You're, you've got, your mind is fit to do the job of getting to know fear face to face. In fact, you even welcome it. You feel more alive because we spend a lot of time avoiding the fear that's there. And it's challenging. The challenging part even extends itself to the point where we then start to court situations that might be frightening or create loneliness. I had one very wonderful teacher some years ago and at a certain point he said, well, it's time for you to do a solitary retreat for about two months. And I said, you know, I wasn't too happy with that. We were doing all these groups sitting and lots of chanting and it was just wonderful in Zen tradition. He said, no, you have to go away by yourself and sit, do the same practice but 
no supports, no sangha, just you know the squirrels and the chipmunks and whatever's there. That's your sangha. I said, well, why? I was sort of resisting it a bit. He said, well, it's time to really flush out fear and loneliness, maybe a little boredom as well. And it's, of course, exactly what happened. Just being alone for a few months, you get awfully bored. Fears that are masked in the activities of a, of a full daily life, There's, they come out. And even the loneliness that one is not in touch with because there are all these lovely people around you and you're having an enjoyable time with them. But suddenly, it's all taken away. You drop down into a loneliness that has nothing to do with other people. Whether they care for you or don't care for you, or whether you love them or don't love them, it's something much deeper than that. And, believe it or not, it's a rich time in practice. You're not wishing you were somewhere else or that this loneliness would go away, even though it's painful. Because now the mind, through, again, this doesn't happen overnight, it's years of practice, wants to grow. The mind wants to learn how to be at peace in the world. And if we can only establish friendly relationships with certain mind states, we only like certain guests, the ones we invited who responded promptly and are well-dressed and clean and polite, well, then we can only feel secure when we're around those kinds of people. We're not comfortable in the world, in a world that is full of unknowns and out of control and looks like it intends to be that way for a while. So that's some of the things that happen. And in small ways, we can seek out a kind of controlled adventure. If you don't like parties that are large because it makes you very anxious or frightened, the next time you get invited to a party which is very large and many of the people don't know each other, Perhaps you go, knowing full well that it will bring up anxiety, but also knowing that your practice is at a point where it can meet those anxieties. Say hello. Fully say hello so it can say goodbye. We just want to do the goodbye part. I don't think it works that way. First, we have to say hello, get to know each other, and then fully see that we don't want to be together and let it go. Goodbye. The other development in the practice that is so helpful, and here's where the seeing part starts to become more what Buddhas and people who practice for a while are doing when they're seeing. I'm just taking off my glasses for those of you who are in the back. And I am seeing now. Supposing I never had these glasses. Didn't even know that they existed. But this is, my nor- this is what I think of as my vision, normal vision. And I read that, come what may seeing. Yep, that's for me. And all these things come up. And I yeah, here I'm, I'm ready for it. Come what may. Fear, great. Loneliness, terrific boredom, rage, all of it. Come on, I'm ready. And I start looking at them, being aware of them. Clearly what I'm seeing is not terribly clear, or what I'm seeing are kind of patches of colors right now. I can hardly distinguish any faces except in the first row, second row. 
But I'm using the same word. I'm saying, yeah, I see what's in this room. Or I see what's in my mind. I see, I see what the body, what my body is. And then it says, hey, try these on. Okay. And now, I also use the same word. I'm seeing. But it's a totally different room. Okay, as the practice gets deeper, what we begin to see is the arising and passing away of everything on a staggering level. Microscopic, macroscopic, whatever you want to look at. Whole civilizations, your neighborhood, very tiny little sensations in your toe. Just the ordinariness we're talking about comes and goes. It's impermanent. Its nature is to pass away, to arise and to pass away, and to be dependent on conditions. It's, the same, it's another way of saying the same thing. We begin to see, and when, let's say we look at something like fear. Perhaps at first, it's very hard to approach fear. It is very hard to approach fear. And we use skillful means, like, for example, the breath. Or not approaching fear if it's too frightening. We back off from it and do other kinds of work. Saving that approach for another day when our mind is stronger. We don't have to do everything all at once. I'm not suggesting that tonight. And so we come back to the breath, perhaps, and we do lots of, say, slow walking, and the mind settles down and becomes much more fit. And the day comes where that increasing fitness of mind allows it or enables it to be used with that same fear. We're now ready to look at fear or loneliness because we're prepared. We've developed our mind. Is, it's not fanciful now to say that I'm ready to see anything. You might say that, but you're not equipped to do it. Just as a young child can't ride a motorcycle, has to wait a while. And then, as the mind gets stronger, it begins to see that whatever it is that we're looking at, not only does it arise and pass away, but it, it's not self. It's empty of self meaning it's empty of a core. It's not inherently real. It has some reality. Some people think that what Buddhism is saying or the Buddhist teaching is pointing to is that there's no self. What What it really means is that there's no inherent self. There's a conventional self. There's a relative self that we all know. And it even has uses, our personality and ego structure. Helpful. It's just not the boss. And it's not us. It doesn't have a core. It's not independent. It's not autonomous. In fact, what it is is that it's completely responsive to changes in causes and conditions. And when you start to see that about anything, a feeling, let's say a negative feeling, a painful feeling, or a frightened, a frightening feeling, when you really see that what fear is, is an impermanent phenomena that arises operates for a certain period of time as long as certain conditions remain and then it's inevitable that it passes away to be replaced by something else like relief which also won't last. And we begin to see if you could see that once the next time it's a little easier to look at fear because you see that it is empty. It's not that you are afraid but that there's fear in the mind. In fact, here is, I feel, a major point for us all to reflect on. 
Uh, I live and work in Cambridge, which, as you probably know, there are more psychotherapists for square inch. And there's a lot of talk of including people on the path, including on this path, about personal problems. We think we have a personal problem. I'm a frightened person. I'm a very lonely person. We talk, the language gives it away. We characterize ourselves as having a defect. I'm defective in the following way. The way of Dharma is not to see it as a personal problem, but rather as part of nature, as a phenomena that operates, that arises and passes away. It makes all the difference in the world. And real seeing sees that. Anything short of it gets caught in seeing it as, as mine. We still think we're looking, but the looking doesn't have total clarity. Let me see if I can make that more clear. Listen to yourself or to other people. Often when, we, when we're down or things are not going our way, we fall into a mode of describing it as, I have a personal problem. I'm defective in some way, and I want to remedy it. Self-improvement. I want to find some way to make myself a better person and to not have this personal problem. Now, I'm not saying that that is worthless, because we also need to do that. There's all kinds of strengthening that's invaluable and probably a prerequisite to deep meditative work. But the Dharma way is something different. It's a little bit like this. If, if you like nature, you know, if you like to watch, let's say, cloud formations or the sky or birds or anything in nature, uh, plant life growing, these are natural phenomena. They come and they go. They arise, they pass away, and we even do it as a kind of... Uh, Sport, you know, we, we like to watch birds, or in Japan, people will watch flowers. It's a kind of naturalistic observation. We, we see nature, and there's something very beautiful, but it is arising and passing away, and we see that. We see flowers bloom and then wilt. But we use nature as something external to ourselves, but in this teaching, nature, dharma, is all of it. In other words, we are not separate from nature. And so the same mind that is able to see a cloud formation arise and pass away with equanimity and even joy, to see a sunset. There was a beautiful one tonight. To just see that finally fade and fade and fade and finally gone to our view. We're able to do that. Or perhaps watch a blizzard. Our mind isn't different. It's the exact same thing. In other words, there are phenomena sometimes called empty, empty phenomena. They don't have a core. They're dependent on conditions. When the conditions change, they disintegrate, fall away to be replaced by something else. And if you watch the mind from a naturalistic point of view, it's very different to observe fear or whatever it is you want to point to. It's a radical shift. Now, I'm not suggesting this as an ideology or as a belief. I can put it on your agenda, but what makes the difference is not you subscribing to it as a belief and feeling good about that, but actually seeing that, actually seeing it in your own mind, seeing what the real nature of the body is. 
And so that's more and more the kind of seeing that's being suggested in come what may seeing. It's seeing also unsatisfactoriness wherever it is. In gross levels where we all see it, but also in very subtle levels. It's more and more releasing itself from the emotional resistance we have to admitting that we're unhappy. Some of us are the other extreme. But for many of us, you know, we're adults, we should be happy. We've done all this schooling and, you know, bought all these clothes and have all these homes and cars and, you know, gotten ourselves rolfed and massaged and, you know, funneled all these vitamins down and we should be happy. I mean, just all that effort and money and time and chiropractor and all of these things are wonderful. I do them myself. But when we're not happy, it's hard to acknowledge that. And our parents certainly have a hard time acknowledging it because they want to feel that they brought up a happy person. Otherwise, what does it say about them? And the practice is seeing. And if there's unhappiness or unsatisfactoriness of whatever level, it's very important to see it. So the Vipassana yogi is a strange kind of person. You know, if they're suffering, it's like uh, for firemen. You know, I, I lived near a firehouse when I grew up. And it was quite, it'd be very quiet. The firemen would be playing cards. When I was a little kid, I would watch them. They'd be reading magazines. And suddenly there'd be an alarm. They'd pull their pants on and come sliding down this post and go right to the fire. No hesitation. I mean, it was just incredible. Half a sandwich in their mouth. That was their job. Our job is to go right to suffering. Suffering? Terrific. Let me add it. It's my stock and trade. Dukkha. Again, for those of you who are new, it's... So you don't take this on as, yeah, I heard that Buddhism is only about dreariness and everything is suffering and no self and impermanent. I'm not sure I want that. The suffering is, if it's there, then it's true. And the whole point is not, as again, as a belief, but to penetrate it, to see what it really is so that we can come to some genuine joy and peace to see if, if, in fact, our minds really are luminescent. If there really is a happiness that's intrinsic, that is not dependent on whether we get a raise or we get a compliment or the weather is nice or people love us or don't love us, get good grades or bad grades. Is there something that's intrinsic and independent of that? Those are conditions. Some of the conditions are dazzling, very beautiful that the mind sees. They operate and they leave. And some of them are pretty dreary. The same teacher who sent me on a two-month solitary retreat so that I could coax out some more loneliness as if there wasn't enough and some more fear and some more boredom, also gave me some advice once and said, you know, there are just so many kinds of minds that keep coming and going and even in just a day and a half you've probably seen them. We love it here and we hate it, just moment to moment, just different minds running after, chasing each other through the mind, different mind states, arising and passing away. And he said, keep the mind that decided to practice. 
that one. Try to remember that one. Try to come back to that one, the mind that decided to practice, which is the mind that decided to assume the position of the host. Okay. I made up the schedule, but I never...